This is the Stay Healthy Experience, uh, hosted by Robert Ferguson, Barbara Chris, and our good friend who's not here today, Mr. Daniel Baldwin. Yep. He's filming a movie. Yeah. Or a TV what? series or something TV, like that. You said a pilot, right? A pilot. Yeah, which yeah. I believe it, it'll get picked up, but Daniel's mm-hmm. a good guy, and his uh, mom has this big cancer research um, organization mm-hmm. where they are committed to raising the awareness and and doing the research for breast cancer. And so I know he would love to be here. We're both very happy that you're here. Yes. Thank you for making time because you're like a walking uh, part of history. (laughs) (laughs) She's been everywhere. I have. I mean, I know we're going to talk about, you know, breast cancer, but your life is like, man, we could sit here and talk to you for hours. For sure. Thank you. I mean, so let's start with, like, when did you know that you wanted to get into law enforcement? I think I knew, like, right around the um, my high school, latter high school years, um, 11th to 12th grade, I wanted to be an investigator. And so um, I set out with the thought of going to the FBI. But mm-hmm. when I went to school and I majored in criminal justice, when I graduated, I went to the, the federal building to apply. And right in small print, it said that in addition to a a bachelor's degree, you needed to have three years of law enforcement experience. And that Mm -hmm. just kind of threw me for a loop. And so I decided to go ahead and and join a local agency. And that's what um, started me off Mm -hmm. in that uh, career. And I started with the sheriff's department Mm -hmm. um, processing with them because they, you know, um, handled all the jails for women in Mm -hmm. the, the county system. And they um, were open to women that were shorter. I look taller than I am, but I'm only five foot four. And so um, LAPD wasn't hiring at the time. But then that's when the lawsuit came about that I, um, the Franchon Blake lawsuit Mm -hmm. that dropped Mm -hmm. the height requirement. And so rather than stay in the sheriff's system and work in the jail for five years, I decided to go with LAPD so that I could promote within that five years instead of staying in the jail. Right. And so that's how I ended up going with LAPD. Wow. Now, what was what was childhood like? Because in my mind, I'm going back to 1980. Uh-huh. I'll never forget. I remember what was going on. My mom had a, a bright orange cutlass. Cutlass Supreme back in the day. She worked for General Motors. Uh-huh. But in my family or the environment I was in, there wasn't a lot of people talking about what worked out for you like like who was the person who influenced you was it a school teacher was it mom dad oh well I grew up I was born in Kansas then my mom moved us to um, Detroit when I was about seven stayed Mm -hmm. there for about seven years and then we moved out here at 14 my mom transferred she was a social worker and then she ended up working for American Airlines but we ended up out here I was you know 14 years old and um at that time, I thought I wanted to be an attorney. And so when I was in high school, I had an English teacher because I was really good with creative writing. And so I had an English teacher and she knew that I wanted to be an attorney and she talked me out of it. She oh. said, attorneys are, there's an overabundance of attorneys <laughs> and they're underpaid. <laughs> and so I said, Two things that are not good for me. Yeah. So she actually talked me out of it. And uh-huh. that's when I started thinking more towards law enforcement. Wow. And so that's, you know, how it happened I, d- I didn't grow grow up with anyone in law enforcement didn't have b- anybody in my family that was um you know an attorney or anything right. like that and you speak about the cutlass that your your mom had my <laughs> uncle actually when we moved to Detroit w- was with my mom's only brother and he was a foreman at, at uh, Ford Motor Company okay and so we we drove you know uh Chevy Impalas 
and stuff oh, cool. like that. Yeah. So did you have anyone try to talk you out of thinking going into law enforcement and any of that? Because I'm sure that wasn't a popular. It wasn't popular. Right. And my mom being a single parent because my mm-hmm. dad died when I was 11. And um, my mom, you know, me being the only girl and having two brothers, she didn't mm-hmm. want me to go. She was scared. Heck yeah. You know, it was risky. And so, mm-hmm. but I was always a tomboy and I was always very strong willed and I wasn't scared. I wanted to do it. It was something I wanted to do. It wasn't my dream to stay on the street. Right. I always wanted to be an investigator. So I knew that at some point I would come out of the field and be, you know, in a detective assignment in right. some way. And so that's why um, she kind of like, she was still scared, but she, you know, did what I wanted to do. Wow. She you was okay with that. She was Followed supportive. your heart. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, was interesting, you know, before we, you know, came on air and, and had this conversation for everybody to listen yeah. in on, we were talking about, you know, the period where you, be, you know, 1980, you know, you got into law enforcement. Mm-hmm. And from mm-hmm. that time, you know, going up to the Rodney King and the O.J. Simpson yeah. and, and having a, a touching on the, the Mark Furmans of the world. And right. sh- share a little bit about that. I know. It's like, <laughs> boy, she can go. Yeah, yeah it was it was crazy. I mean, I did live through the whole Rodney King thing uh, incident, which changed a lot of things on the police department with protocol as far as the way we did things. And and um, and then as far as Mark Furman, I was a young officer at West L.A. Division. And for at that time, I was what they called a P2. So it was like I, I, I was on probation for a year and a half. And then once you're off probation, you automatically become a P2. Mm-hmm. And then you go to the other ranks once you promote, you test and all that. So I was a P2, a brand new P2 at uh, West L.A. when I met Mark Furman. And he was one of my peers. We were both P2s. We were on a mid-watch working from 6 in the evening to 3 in the morning. And we would go and do the footbeats in the village at UCLA around the Westwood Village. Mm-hmm. And um, I had no idea that this guy was so hateful towards women at that time. And so whenever myself and other people of color, whether it was male or female, would, were working, mm-hmm. he would ostracize us. And if oh. any of the male white officers spoke to us or said in, anything to us, he would actually ostracize them and say, uh, no, you're not supposed to be talking to her. You're not supposed to be talking to him. I thought it was what? a joke at first. And so it got so bad on our shift with him ostracizing the African-Americans that one of the lieutenants who was on the shift um, said, you know, it's got to stop because it was becoming an issue. Mm-hmm. And one night I was assigned to work with Mark Furman and he stood up in roll call and he refused to work with me. He told the Washington I'm not working with her. And the watch commander and the rest of us thought he was joking and right. he was dead serious. And the watch commander told him, you're going to work with her. And then we went out in the field. It was horrible. We wow. literally fought all night. Oh, my god! Until it got to a point where we went to a burglary call up in Mandeville Canyon, those huge properties, mm-hmm. dark, and he refused to get out of the car. So oh. I had to approach the house by myself. And at that point is when I said, this guy is serious and it's dangerous. Right. So then I went back. I said, take me back to the station. Got back to the station and I told the watch commander, I said, I'm, I'm going to go right. home sick if you don't change my right. partner out. Putting and you I at risk. Kinda, yeah, it was mm-hmm. risky. So long story short, that was that night. It was following that, <clears> that <throat> when I would be working with one of his friends, we at that time had what we called uh, mobile digital terminals where you would send messages to the radio, um, the operators, the dispatchers, or you send car to car. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And he would send messages to our car 
and because I was the passenger, I would be the one responsible for the messages. Right. And he would that's when he would make comments like, oh, you need to go dance on Soul Train, you don't belong here, and things like that. And those were all transmitted in, in writing, so it was documented. And it was after that time in 1986 that the L.A. Times decided to do a story on it because it had become it had come to their attention about the right. Men Against Women organization that he started. Yeah. And um, and I, I was interviewed as part of that. And so then you fast forward to the 90s when O.J.'s case mm-hmm. happened. Mm-hmm. That was up up in the West L.A. area. And at that time, Mark Furman had then promoted and become a detective. Uh-huh. And because of his history and Johnny Cochran pulling, you know, all everything out, all of the right. arsenal out, <laughs> you know, in this case, he decided that, oh, okay, this guy, he's a racist. He's a known racist. And we know that he probably planted that glove. Right. You know, and so then that became like um, the headline at that point, and that's where I came into play is because they went back to that 1986 article and saw that there was evidence that he had started these hateful organizations, and they, um, at that time I was a detective, and they were camped outside of the station waiting to interview me because they wanted me, Johnny Cochran's team wanted me to go to court and testify that Mark Furman was in fact a racist. How is a guy, you know, with that type of attitude, mm-hmm. go from where he was to becoming a, a detective. I know. You know what I mean? Like, how, how did, did he stay in? It, it, you know what? There had been a lot of um, instances where he had tried, you know, to claim that he was stressed and all of that, and the department still did not take any action against him for the things that he did, nor try to stop him from promoting based on him claiming that he was stressed and all that kind of stuff. But they, um, he was just able to prevail because it's a civil service process that you test through. So it's the city. You apply, mm-hmm. and if there's nothing that stops you in your package, like you know some kind of uh, an order or some disciplinary action that's taken against you, and there was none against him. For all these things that he did, there was no discipline that was associated with it. So he was able to move forward. Oh, wow. So people could complain, but there was nothing formal that came There came was nothing that formal that came out against him. Um, in the way that or in, that would stop him from right. promoting. Okay, got it. And so he took the test. He passed the test. Ugh. Went for interviews. And you have to remember. You have to remember that at that time, the way that the department was set up, it was still a male-dominated environment, mm-hmm. and you still had people who looked like him who were going to be accepting of him no matter what. True. Right. You know, no matter what was in that package, no matter what his reputation was, they were going to still support him. And allow and overlook the things that he had done. Right. You know, and so he was able to move forward and make detective. You know, all I could think about was if you could take some of technology today, like Mm -hmm. with our smartphones, Mm -hmm. go back to during that 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 (laughs) moment when you were in the car and he was sending those little messages saying you should be on Soul Train. Right. You could have sent him a photo and said, well, I was on Soul Train. (laughs) (laughs) By the way. How you like me now? And at the moment I was like, hmm. Did you that? Know I was on so <laughs> But with with that life and your career, so you ultimately become a captain. Yes. Wow. When did breast cancer show up? Mm-hmm. Was it before then or after? It was before then. Breast cancer showed up. I was a lieutenant um, in sign of in charge of a unit at Internal Affairs, mm-hmm. and I had like seventeen detectives that were working for me, sergeants and detectives that were working for me. Great job. I loved it. I was working at, we were at an offsite in Burbank. Mm-hmm. And I just happened to go, I was working so much 
And I, that's why I bring up that, that assignment because I was working so much. I was working around the clock, you know, because I'd leave extra early to avoid the traffic right. and get to work. And then I'd be there for hours. And on the other end, I'd stay late to avoid the traffic. Right. So I'm literally going yeah. in at 5 in the morning and leaving there at 7 at night. You know, and um, and that's not even including the call outs, because whenever an officer was involved in something that was major, Mm -hmm. if it was a criminal of a criminal nature, then we we would get called out. Mm -hmm. And so um, I was tired. And that was in 2005, between 2005, 2006. And it was at the time that every year from the time I was 26, I had mammograms. I had never missed an appointment, and my doctor started me early because of my strong family history. Right. So 2005 came. For whatever reason, I missed my appointment. So 2006, now you fast forward to May of 2006, I go to my appointment, my call, and I say, oh, I can't, you know, I'm going to Atlanta. Me and the family were going to Atlanta. I said, I need to change my appointment. Well, they didn't have anything else available until September. I knew it was a long time, and I was kind of leery, but... I forgot that I didn't have the mammogram in right. 2005. Oh, okay. But it was a blessing in disguise, and I'll tell you why in a minute. So I go, you know, I postpone it. September comes. I go in for my appointment. Mm-hmm. And when I'm there, I notice that the, you know how they'll, I, I don't know if you've ever had yes, a mammogram. You look kind of young. Oh, you're so uh, sweet. <laughs> I have. I've had many. Yeah, yeah. So you know how they have, they don't, they make it where you don't get dressed until they come, they look at your film, and then they come back and tell you, okay, you're good. Go ahead and get dressed. and. Mm-hmm going about your married right, way. Right. Well, this particular time, the, the lady kept stalling. She kept coming in the room, and then she'd leave. Mm. She'd come in the room, and then she came in and started asking me a bunch of questions. She oh. said, um, where did you have your last mammogram? And I'm telling her, oh, I had it here. I always have them here. Or if I didn't have it here, I know I went one time to Reseda or whatever. So uh, we were going back and forth like that. Mm. And so it just was unsettling for me. But she said, okay, you can go ahead and get dressed. And... It still kind of stuck with me, like, oh, something don't seem right. So I go home. The next day, I get to, uh, no, I I get home that evening, and I have a message from my doctor. Hey, Ms. Morris, I need you to call me, you know, first thing, you know, as soon as you can. Don't worry. It's nothing to worry about. And I look at PJ, and I'm like, okay, that don't sound right. Right. He's talking about call me, you know, at your earliest convenience. That and I had just had the mammogram, so I can't wait to call him the next morning. Right. You know, by then it was too late. They were already closed. I get to my office that morning. I was literally there five minutes. It was like ten after five. And the phone rings and it's him, the doctor. And he says, Hey, Mrs. Morris. And I said, Okay, what? Like, right. it's got to be something wrong if you calling me this early. Oh, my goodness. And it just, I just got knots in my stomach. And mm. he says, no, 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 you know, we just need you to come back in for some additional views. Just want to make sure, you know, everything is okay. So we've set that up. I go back in. And um, then I get the call after that visit. And he says, yeah, it looks like a suspicious mass. I need you to come in and go see Dr. So-and-so for a biopsy. And now I'm really scared. And so oh, man. I go in and I have the biopsy. And what they, they were prepared to do, the biopsy, review it right then, and then go ahead. If it was cancerous, they were going to go ahead and do a lumpectomy all oh, at wow. the same time oh, so wow. I wouldn't have to wait. So I was grateful for that. Yes. The blessing in disguise was that it was two centimeters, so it was small. But the thing was, if I had gone in May, of that year they wouldn't have they seen, they seen wouldn't it, have seen it. Oh. and i had an aggressive form so had you know months passed until the next may i wouldn't have been expecting to go back to the next may 
And I'm sure I probably would have seen signs because I had started to see like my one breast was engorged a little bit, but I was like, I'm eating ice cream every day. I was literally eating cold stone ice cream every day and I was losing weight. And that's why I tell people all the time, you got to listen to your body. Right. So you, you felt, you know, you felt I, like a difference. I noticed that my left breast was a little bit engorged, but I didn't feel any pain or anything, mm-hmm. but I was losing weight. Mm-hmm. I was just losing weight. Right. And I thought it was because I was working around the clock and just, mm-hmm. just, just not eating enough or whatever. But I was literally eating Cold Stone every day. I was just craving this ice cream. And so mm-hmm. it was just a blessing that I had gone when I did in September because no telling, they told me that my cancer or my tumor was an aggressive form. Six months, I would have been out of here. Wow. wow. It would have advanced that far, that fast. I was just about to ask. It was just like a six-month time frame. That's so scary. Yes. And so, so what stage was it when they discovered it? Stage zero because I, it hadn't, tra- hadn't attached to any lymph nodes. They did. Okay. They took the sentinel and two other nodes out, and there was none present there. They checked the margins. There was none there. And so it literally was contained in the duct and it was that two centimeters and it hadn't traveled anywhere. The, vet, the worst thing though is that it was triple negative so it wasn't receptive to any kind of estrogen treatment or anything. Mm-hmm. So the only thing they could do for me is offer chemotherapy. Mm-hmm. Which and you be, did, right? Which I did mm-hmm. because I wanted to live and that's the only thing they could offer me. Otherwise it would have just been a chance of it coming back. And with my strong family history and not being able to take anything like tamoxifen or anything like that to keep it at bay, I said, let's do it, you know? And um, I, at that and, and the story's oh, in the book. It's right? all in there. Okay. Yeah, it's all in Everybody's there. Gonna, we're all going to get this book. Everybody's yeah, gonna, read your yeah I take you through it, you know, step by step, but I intertwine it with what was going on at work. Right. I talk about my family history and how I came up. And, and I, what's most important that I talk to young women about is that when I was, when my mother was diagnosed with breast cancer, she was 42 years old and I was 22. I was in college. And I, all I knew at that time was that, you know, breast cancer, chemotherapy, it takes your hair out. I didn't put any more thought into it mm-hmm. than that. And so in, in my mind, in hindsight, I don't feel I was there for her because I didn't know. You right. know, I would go to her doctor's appointments with her. I was there with her when they found the lump. The doctor actually found the lump and then oh. sent her for biopsy and all that. And um, but it just didn't register with me. I was doing my my thing. And I talk about that in the book. I was just off doing my thing. And so um, by the time it came back, um, I was 35 and she had the recurrence. She had the recurrence because she had the radiation. She had radiation and um, she didn't have a mastectomy or anything. But they only opted to do that because at the time she had just had some major surgery before that. And so they didn't want her put her back under and so they opted for the radiation on the breast and so I heard later that and I saw this on 2020 that generally when women have um, radiation it sometimes pushes the cancer cells to the back and I think that's exactly what happened to my mom because they eight years later they found it in her bones Mm. and so that's when she really started her her battle and spiraled downwards for two years. She kept getting the fluid buildup on her lungs and so on and so oh. forth. But by that time, I was 35. I had two children. I was married. I had right. been on my job for about 12 years. And I was way more dialed in, way more supportive. I mean, I literally took care of her. Myself and my husband took care of her for those last two years, you know, where we were there for her and making sure that she was at her doctor's office and and going to all of her appointments and everything. And so 
um, that was, you know, the the thing that was going on with that. When, wow. when you reflect <laughs> on when you found out that you have cancer, mm-hmm. same as with your mom, what is what's the what's going on mentally? Like, like mm-hmm. my thought. I mean, obviously I haven't, but my mom is just uh, got diagnosed with stage. Uh, zero breast mm-hmm. cancer for the third time. Wow. Uh, and my aunt is going to surgery tomorrow, mm-hmm. um, second time. Um, and I've never asked them this question, but my compassion and, and, and interest to come close to understanding so I could have more of myself, I can give more of myself to support them, mm-hmm. is what's going on in that moment? Is Is the thought, how can I live? Is the thought, what do I eat? Like, like, you know what I mean? Like, what, take us inside. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Um, that's a, a great wow. question because for me, I had so much stuff going on, you know, with work. My one daughter, my oldest daughter was up at San Jose State in college. She was in her senior year. My youngest daughter was living on campus here at CSUN. You know, my husband is working around the clock because he was a homicide detective. And so um, I was just thinking at that time, that was in September. In August, when my daughter went back to school up at San Jose, she had a coach who um, had come down with breast cancer. She had just been diagnosed with breast cancer, but my daughter had been calling me, Mom, something's wrong with coach, because she didn't show up for this, she didn't show up for that. And so then at some point later, maybe a week or so, then she finally found out, they found out that she had breast cancer. And so my daughter was devastated because she remembers at seven, my mother dying of breast cancer. So she was afraid. So I'm now in the process uh, of going with my testing and right. finding out what's going on with me. So the first thing that came to my mind was, I can't tell her. Right. Mm. I can't tell my other daughter because they'll be devastated if I tell them that. So I told my husband, I said, you know what? I just want to go to the biopsy. I don't want to tell the girls. I want to, if it's benign, then no harm, no foul. And if it isn't, then I'll tell them then. But I don't want to tell them now because I'm telling you, my daughter was so torn up about her oh, coach. And so um, my husband was like, no, they are grown. You got to tell them. Because what if something happens to you on the table? What, what if something happens, you know, during that biopsy? Mm-hmm. You know, that won't be fair. And I said, yeah, you're right. So the girls come home, and one of their friends was there. My youngest daughter's friend was there. And so the girls were bickering about something. And I, and I just, I lost my patience. And I said, you know what? I have, I have stuff going on. I don't need this. And they both stopped in their tracks. And they right. goes, what's going on, Mom? They knew. No, they what's wrong? It. They yeah. knew. And, and so I said, I don't want to talk about it. And then they start crying. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> so it was like they really knew something was wrong because I never complained. You know, and they always saw me as a trooper. You know, I'm just just doing my thing. And so we stepped away from the friend and went and sat on the steps. And I told them what was going on. And my youngest daughter, she just stopped. She says, let's just pray about it. And we Aww. stood there and we sat there for like, it seemed like an, an hour, but it was only a few minutes. And we literally prayed. And, um, and after that, I felt so much better. And I was so glad that my husband had told mm-hmm. me no you need to tell them you shared with them but my whole thought was i don't want to affect anybody around me right. i yeah. want to keep things as normal as possible and that was my goal you know i never fought i never felt and i don't know why i never felt that i was going to die mm-hmm. i didn't 
And even after getting that diagnosis and, and the, the doctor saying, this is all we can do for you. And the thing that really bothered me and really kind of set me on the right path was I was at Facy Medical, which is where my doctor, my primary doctor was. And they were, I was going through their oncologist. I'd met with this oncologist for the first time, and I sat there across the table from this man, and he was so cold and so callous. He was putting information in the computer about me and things I was telling him and mm -hmm. about my family history, and he literally just said, you're going to die because you got a 67% chance that your cancer is going to come back within five years. Oh my God. And when he said that, that's the only time I cried. And, I, and that was the one time I had told my husband, no, you don't have to go to this appointment with me. I'm just going to go meet with the doctor. He's going to tell me what, you know, when we start chemo, blah, blah, blah. And that was literally the only time that I cried. I, oh. I sat there and cried because I couldn't believe this man was basically right. telling me I was going to die. I walked out of there and I said, I'm not going to die. And I went to my doctor and I told my doctor, I said, I will not go down there for treatment. I want to go somewhere else for a second opinion. Good yes, I believe I have cancer. But I want treatment options, and I don't want to go here. Good for you. And so he allowed me to go to City of Hope. What I didn't realize what, at the time was that I could sue the city because for law enforcement, for peace officers and firefighters, cancer is a presumptive illness because they never know. You never know. Mm -hmm. the, you don't know the origin of any right. cancer. Right. So they can't say that you didn't get it from work. Right. And because we wow. are, we have so many bloodborne and airborne pathogens that we encounter right. on a regular basis that the average person doesn't, mm -hmm. that is a, that's just like a perfect foundation for us to win. And so I had been at a women's conference and I'd heard the CHP wow. officer get up and mm -hmm. talk about how she sued the state because she has five daughters and she wanted to protect her daughters and she sued the state and she won. And I said, hmm. So I got an attorney and I filed a claim against the city of LA for my breast cancer and I won. And so they covered all of my costs wow. and everything at City of Hope. Wow. Yeah, they considered it a work comp injury. You know, all I, just, I, can, all I can think of as you're sharing that story mm -hmm. is how strong you are. <laughs> and having a supportive family and having, you know, being a person of faith then I think about the woman who isn't that strong. Yeah. Right. How that guy, that basically, you know, he, he put her on the path oh. to die. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And that's why people like me and other people who have it, you got to share your story. You have to share your story because then you empower other people. And, and that has happened to me so many times when I've spoken in large groups or when I've smoken, spoken in small groups, especially at like my book signings for A Mama's Curse. Um, I mean, almost undoubtedly, somebody always comes up to me afterwards and says, oh, my God, I was just mm -hmm. diagnosed with breast cancer last week, and I don't know what to do, and I'm, I'm afraid of chemo, you know, and they start asking me questions. It, oh, and, I t and I tell people all the time, if I just touch one person, right. that's, good, that's good to me because that's just one more person who might be able to overcome this and not succumb to it just because of their mental because it is a lot about mindset. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that's what, when you're sharing your story, I'm so, uh, I guess, just impressed with that, your, the mindset and going through that. I mean, mm -hmm. I know with, with me, you know, just get, getting my normal annual mammogram, and mm -hmm. I think it's a part of just getting older mm -hmm. and getting, you just worry about mortality more, I guess. And right. It's, it, it's interesting, even though you know it's good for you to do, it, right. there's a fear to go and do that, because you're almost like, I don't, 
want to know if there's something Absolutely. wrong. It's so scary. And so mm-hmm. I think of how you um, held yourself. You were so strong. I mean, but did you feel like you were strong? Like, was it just? I was determined. Mm-hmm. I was more determined, I think. And the strength just came from how I grew up with my mom being the, the, the role model for me. Because mm-hmm. all the time that she was going through her bout with breast cancer, the first time and then the recurrence, she kept claiming her healing. She says, I'm just claiming my healing. And at that mm-hmm. time, by the time she had the recurrence, she had become a minister um, at uh, Methodist Church in L.A. Oh, nice. And so she just really was strong in her faith and, and just, you know, um, that helped me. Mm-hmm. Because one thing I knew for sure that was in my soul was that I was going to come down with breast cancer. I just, I just knew it. I just knew. So when it happened, I was not devastated. Wow. I wasn't devastated. Of course, I was sad. I didn't want to go through everything I had to go through. But I said, you know what? I'm not going to lay down and die. I'm just going to, I have to fight. And I have to keep things as normal as possible for all the people around me. Because I didn't want to be war as me. I've never been that type. I've never mm. been the glasses half empty. Right. I've always been the glasses half full kind of person. Yeah. And all the fights and battles that I went through on the police department, yeah. growing up. You know, um, with a single parent, and then you know, as I, when I was on the police department, my brothers decided to go the opposite way of the law, so that was a struggle for me. (laughs) 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 I talk about that and how, you know, at at, on the police force here, I am taking my mom who's dying of cancer to Chino State Prison to visit my brother. That's crazy. And that was against my principles. Right. That was totally against my principles. You know, and so all of that played a huge part in my strength and, and just having to, to push forward. That's crazy. So how did, the, how did you come up with this title? Mama's because curse. originally the title was going to be Mama's Curse Was a Blessing, but I just left it at Mama's Curse, and I included and incorporated in the story the blessing. But I came up with that because it's almost like when you have a strong family history, it's almost like a curse. And so I looked at it like, okay, this is mama's curse. But it didn't only apply to the breast cancer. I looked at generational curses that affected my family. Mm. And that had to do with the alcoholism, which my Mm. one brother is, the drug addiction, which my other brother is, the domestic violence that my mother endured that we saw growing up. And so all of those are generational curses. Then when you talk about the police department, you talk about the racism and sexism on the police department, all of those things is what made me say mama's curse because it it implied that it was attached to the breast cancer mm-hmm. but then I had to expand that when I brought in the thoughts of my other family members yeah. and all the other generational curses. Wow. wow. So I have to ask with all that going on so mm-hmm. your police department then you're dealing with breast cancer and then the stress of you know wanting not wanting to impact your girls and your family so much. How did you personally deal with the stress of that? I would just feel like that is so overwhelming how did you just cope I think it's mind over matter I'm telling you I and I have because I'm one of these people I can't sit still I'm either decorating or I'm moving (laughs) stuff around I'm a very creative artistic kind of person Mm -hmm. and so I really think that just staying focused on other things Mm -hmm. um it, it helped me so you have other outlets like creative outlets or yeah because mm -hmm. I mean we were in the theater Mm-hmm. Um, we didn't we didn't start filming um, and doing like the creative the 
the stuff for my daughter until about 20, well, it was 2005. We had started already. We were already into the arts with the, um, her filming her first movie. She was 17 years old, and she wrote this, play, this movie, and we were filming it. And the school, she was, at, she was in a high school in, in the Valley, and they had a film academy. And one of the teachers there, her, her final project was going to be to write this movie. And so she calls me one day and she goes, Mom, she goes, I, I read this article about this boy in Texas who killed his girlfriend. And so that whole domestic violence thing involving teenagers mm-hmm. came up. So we did that. And so that kind of kept me, kept my mind focused on other things because I was there filming with her. I would provide the craft services, you know. And so we were her support system. And so that kind of helped. Just staying busy like that. And my girls were always in the arts, dancing or karate. or And so I was always the one taking them around, you know, to their different events. And, and my other daughter played basketball, and my husband coached her during the club ball seasons. And so I was busy all the time. We were either in the gym, you know, with my one daughter playing basketball, or we were at Debbie Allen's Dance Academy with my <laughs> other daughter dancing. And then the arts, you know, with her involved in theater and film and, and stuff like that. So. You know, it's funny. I'm sitting here and just, you know, meeting your husband who comes across with a, a ton of warmth. And both of you guys are just awesome people. Yeah, just, thank you. As soon as, you, as, soon as you, they meet you, people mm-hmm. meet you, just to give people an idea of the energy that you yes, guys put out. Yes, for sure. But at the same time, I'm thinking about my, I was thinking about my dad, <laughs> who's no longer with us. But my dad was really into guns. Mm-hmm. And I'll never forget, like, taking my ex-wife to meet him for the first time and in my mind i know what i'm going to do so we get there and they didn't talk much he and his wife Mm -hmm. and but they got excited about guns i said so dad you got a gun on you right now he pulls out one out of his front pocket (laughs) pulls one out the back pocket has one in his sock wow and they're always in the apartment and then she has them and my 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 wife was like oh my Because, you know, you walk in and they're just sitting there like this, this old That's couple funny. that right. you don't know what Strapped. you're walking up to. Yeah. And I guess my mind was thinking, one, I was going, that man who said that to you, mm-hmm. I'm sure when you shared that with your husband, mm-hmm. did you share it back then? Yeah, I uh, did. And, did and he, he was mad because he wanted, he said, I should have been there with you. Right. And that's the one time I told him, no, you don't have to go. I'm just going to go and meet him. He's going to tell me when, you know, to start my chemo and this and that. He was upset. He oh, was yeah. really upset. But he's still thinking about that guy. Yeah. <laughs> and I was just like, wow. I mean, I, that, I'm telling you, that was the only time I cried. And he was, he was very upset that he hadn't gone with me. Right. See, could you yeah. imagine like just going no. anywhere with this this couple? Like right. no, oh. like like for instance, if we went <laughs> because they're going to pick up if somebody's got like some negative intentions. Right. You know what I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I mean if, we, if we go I'll to the mall, I'll stand behind her. Stand behind her. I can go, see walking because they're real kind, they're cool, right. and we're talking about things. And they go, no, stop, stop. Yeah. Okay. All right, no, we're good. But it's funny because we've never, and I think that's why our marriage has worked. For so long, you know, we've been married 37 years. Oh, and awesome. we Congratulations. Met, yeah, we met on the department. I was already at the station that he came to. Mm-hmm. And then we, w- when we met, within nine months we were married. Aww. And we've been together ever since. But we have, we're, our daughters call us twins because we think exactly alike. We have the same personality. But we're not police people in that we're not gun happy. We're not badge heavy. We're just people who happen to choose that profession. Right. You know what I'm saying? A lot right. of times when we're out, we don't want people to know we're cops back when we were right. still working. Right. And most people think I'm a teacher. And they, <laughs> they don't okay, know I what he is. Yeah, yeah. yeah, they think I'm a teacher. 
Um, so they think he's an attorney. You attorney, know, I was thinking out, professor. Yeah, they yeah. think he's an attorney. You know, and so they just they they never associate us with the police department, and we don't carry ourselves that right. way. You, you know didn't let what it I'm define saying? you. They're, they're the, exactly. They're the Huxt. The was the Huxtables. Uh, the Huxtables. Yeah, they used to call us that yeah, too. I can see that. <laughs> Until recently, we don't want to be associated with the Huxtables. Right. <laughs> Okay, so a little, a little off track. I was just wondering, like, between your husband and yourself, mm-hmm. who's the most famous person you either pulled over or had to arrest? Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> oh, oh, oh! This Ooh. is a very interesting story. Oh, and I didn't pull him over, <laughs> but remember, I told you I danced on Soul Train, right? Oh. So I was a captain at Van Nuys Division. And I get a call one morning. I'm on my way in, and they say, "Okay, we got a, we got a." Uh, homicide up on Mulholland need you to respond because the captain usually responds to all homicides I'm like okay so I get up there it's Don Cornelius oh no suicide wow how how ironic is that oh you know what I'm saying and so that came to mind when you asked that I mean we've had some I've had so many instances because at one point I was in charge of the cold case homicide and sex unit up at Robbery Homicide Division. And so I was there when they were doing the Biggie Smalls case and wow. all of those investigations, those high-profile investigations, I was there at, at Robbery Homicide Division. So I'm trying to think off the top of my head what's another um, famous Oh, that just broke incident. your heart when you got there and Oh, found my out. God, I was Jeez. shocked. Wow. I was like, wow, because I knew his son, and his son Tony mm-hmm. was there, and I was just... I was blown away, and then I started getting the phone calls. Hey, you're on TMZ. Uh, and I said, get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> and I was so, and so you know how, I, now I understand how they tell stars, don't read comments and stuff like that. These people um, were on there saying I looked like a man, and I wonder what? if he abused her. And oh, I'm like, oh, my God, that's horrible. <laughs> but, yeah, I, I show up, and it's him, and I'm just shocked. I'm like, wow, how, how ironic is that, that I danced on Soul Train as a teenager and I would be the one to respond to his wow. suicide. Jeez. Okay, so what is this, this wow. book? Okay, so Gertrude Bellamy, Homicide Detective, is a, it's, it's a fictional series, mm-hmm. crime series, that I, it's based on a black female homicide detective, LAPD detective, mm-hmm. and the stories in there are all based on or inspired by true LAPD investigations that I investigated. Wow. And there are real murders that are infused in there that my husband handled. Wow. Wow. Man, this is some good stuff. <laughs> I know. I'm like, I'm read it so now. that's one of four. I ha- I'm working on two. I'm almost done with two, and I'm going to end it with four. And it ends in the year 2020. So that I'm a little bit behind mm-hmm. because I need to have the information from 2020 to put into the book. So I have real life instances that are infused in there. Like when Aaliyah died, I make comments about mm-hmm. that and, mm-hmm. and just real true life stories, you know, that are infused in there or facts mm-hmm. that are infused in there. Are wow. there any of the cases that you've worked on that still haunt you or like, I guess you'd say haunt you to this day, whether they're solved or unsolved? Yeah, there's one, there was one when I was a young officer at West L.A. where there was a man, he was, um, I don't remember if he was in the movies, in the movie industry, but his two sons killed him. 
And I responded to that scene. Oh. It was right up off of the Sunset. Those, no, it wasn't no, the no. Melendez brothers. Oh. It was before that case. Oh. It was in the 80s. But I just remember that's really eerie to me. Every time I would pass that house, it was eerie to me because mm. when we walked in there, the son is the one that greeted us. Ooh. And then we later found out that he and his brother are the ones that killed the father. Oh my goodness. And so that was always eerie to me. I'm trying to think of another. I've had so many sure. instances um, with regards to, I'm trying to think of another case. I can't think off the top of my mm. head, but I know the Don Cornelius one was very crazy to me to be there. Um, now with your training though, and, and with the detective work, did you take a detective approach to dealing with breast cancer once you, you know, were diagnosed? I did. That's a good question. But I did that before I started my treatment, I was, once I found out, then I started Googling, you know, all, you know, how does breast cancer look? How does it affect, you know, what is triple negative? What is, you know, how does the estrogen affect me or why can't I take it? I must I was dizzy by the time I was done going through, you know, looking right. up everything, looking to see what it looked like and, and, um, and all of that. So that was, I did a lot of research. Wow. I did. And I had already been doing a lot of the, I had already been walking for years, like with the Revlon walk for breast cancer, oh, right. mm -hmm. all the walks. If you, if you name one, I did it. Okay. I was there every year. Well, I'm, I'm glad that you went to City of Hope. <laughs> Me too. Because that's where she met Laura. Yes. And, yes. And Laura is how we connected, mm -hmm. of course, wow. through Kevin. Mm -hmm. And Laura awesome. is part of the OWL program. Right. right. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and so as you fast forward, you see what we're doing with this yes. platform. Mm -hmm. Our goal is to help reduce the potential effect that took place when you met that oncologist. Okay. Because when my mom first got first diagnosed with um, breast cancer, right. I remember her having a horrible experience when she went to a nutritionist. Oh, really? Oh. So she went to two. One said, eat soy. The other one says, oh, stay away from mm. it. And it was that confusion mm -hmm. um, that it was almost she was being bullied. Mm -hmm. Fortunately, like you being strong, she had a son who's a nutritionist. Right. And so I could help with clarity in that area. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, she experienced that cold experience too right. with the oncologist. Right. And we're not putting oncologists down because right. Laura no, but and, and uh, you know, Hannah, I mean, they're great people. Right. But we know that they can't be with people That's right. all the time. Yeah. yeah. But Laura was huge <laughs> for me. Because she was so sweet and so welcoming when I showed up at City of Hope. I actually did not fear going there. They made me feel a sense of comfort. It was her and Dr. Somlo was her yeah. doctor. And, um, and I remember when I was getting ready to take the, I was studying for captain. Mm -hmm. And I had already scheduled, the, I had applied to take the test. And I told my husband, I'm like, man, so should I still go? And he's like, you know what? If you get up that morning and you don't feel like going, don't go. But at least you're already signed up to go. Mm -hmm. And I say go if you feel like it. And so I told Laura, I said, I got this dog on test coming up. And she had already told me you can't have any coffee. They didn't want you to have caffeine. Mm. And uh -huh. so um, I said, I have this eight-hour assessment center <laughs> test that I have to go to. And that was after my second um, treatment. So I was early on into my chemotherapy. Mm -hmm. I didn't, and I was worried about the chemo brain that they talked about and yeah. all of that. And she's like, okay, you can have coffee that morning. And I said, <laughs> okay, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> 
And I just remember that for some reason she was just so supportive, you know. So I just felt good going there, and I knew that it was a National Cancer Institute, so I knew that they would have a lot of clinical trials and things that would be available to me that I might not get somewhere else. Right. And that was that was a real blessing to go there, to be able to go to City of Hope. And then meeting her and Dr. Somlo, they were just like, I mean, as soon as I walked in, I just felt instantly welcome. Isn't that amazing? Just the simplest human touch like that makes a huge difference. Man, such a huge difference. And ever since then, she was like a little sister to me because she would, you know, text me and invite me and my husband out to meet her and her her boyfriend at the time for dinner and things like that. And, And then she told me she was moving back to Massachusetts and we just stayed in touch. And it's so, so cool. It's so cool. cool. Yeah, but she's a sweetheart. Well, we have wow. about five minutes. I, I mean, they went so fast. It's going way yeah. too fast. We didn't even touch on like some of the I mean, police stuff. And I mean, there's just so much. Like, I know. I mean, I have this one question that I, I, I thought about this morning mm-hmm. as I I have these moments where I'm getting better at it. But I like to begin my day with some prayer. Okay. And the question was, how do you look at mortality after going through all you've gone through, like how is day to day living and thinking for you? Mm-hmm. For me, and I and I'll go back to when I was diagnosed with breast cancer. I was 48 years old, and I had always prayed that God would let me live to see my girls old enough to be self sufficient, and He had done that. And I tell people all the time, when I was diagnosed, if I died from the breast cancer at that time, God had answered my prayers, so I couldn't be upset about that. Mm. And then when I would go to City of Hope for my treatments, right where the waiting room was for me to go into chemo, right across the hall was the children's unit. And I would see these babies with masks on, and they're playing. They had no idea what they were being confronted with. And I said, I'm 48 years old. I've lived. Those babies haven't lived. And so as far as my mortality, even today, I've done so much, and I've conquered so much, that if God took me today, I, I can't, I have no regrets. I have no regrets. So, I mean, a lot of what you're sharing, we were talking about with uh, yeah. Pastor Lonnie. Mm-hmm. Because, it's, I mean, you obviously are connected. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and, and I think when you're in that place, which a lot of, I mean, seem like more and more people aren't, mm-hmm. that they're just lost. They're just floating. Oh, no. I, I ha- I'm clear. I'm clear. And I know that we're all going to pass that way. Ain't nobody going to get out of alive. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> That's one thing that's going to happen to everybody. One thing that's going to happen. We ain't getting out of here alive. So, you know, if he takes me today, if he takes me 10 years from now, I'm good. I thank God for the the time that I've had. I've had a blessed life. I've had a great marriage. I have great children. And I've had a great role model in my mom mm-hmm. and other women, and but primarily my mom. And so... I've lived. I'm good. Well, there you go. So wow. everybody, all Woo. of our fan supporters, <laughs> Mama's Curse, get this one now. And by mm-hmm. the I would say this is a great book for, like, I'm going to get one for my mom, my aunt, my nieces. Um, I mean, this is this is a real, thank you for, for know, thank being you so here. Much. Absolutely. Because you guys are, like, both awesome. And you're, really? And you have good taste in clothes because she said that, you know. <laughs> part of the success of your marriage is that uh, your husband he picked it up early on that yes yes ma'am no. not, not ma'am but uh yes sweetheart and he's back there yeah. Yeah. Right? Yeah. he's my biggest he's right there he See, I, didn't, I didn't pick that up when i was married and unfortunately oh. 
And I fought it too. I was like, I'm never going to, I'm never. Well, look what happened. That's your, <laughs> that's your sensei right there. So I get a chance to do it again. Trust me, I'm going to be like, I got it. What do you need, sweetheart? <laughs> so, Barbara, any last questions you have? Um, you know, I actually just, maybe what are some words of wisdom, whether it's as a mom or as a professional or as a cancer survivor? What, are, what, would, your, what would your words of wisdom be? Stay true to yourself. Mm. You know, live in your truth, always live in your truth. And that's kind of what that book, Gertrude Bellamy, kind of talks about. Mm. It's just living in your truth. Don't try to be somebody else. Be you and be the best that you can be. Mm. But definitely stay true to yourself because you can put yourself out for other people and not take care of you. Just make me cry. I think I I did an article. I, I posted an article yesterday. And I was moved to do it where I talked mm. about putting your mask on first. Mm. Oh, yeah. And um, for whatever reason, I, I had written that years ago and I was moved to do it. And since then, I think I've gotten at least a dozen messages of people really? saying, thank Aww. you. Yeah. So like you said, trust was taking place yeah. inside. Mm-hmm. You know, listen to that, that mm-hmm. inner voice. You have to. Mm. Well, and, and uh, so we've, we've made available like your website for people okay. to go and learn more about you and the family business and yes it's well, so diverse you. i mean we just like scraped the surface oh. today <laughs> the surface and i would love to like you know have you back and sometimes maybe we could even do the interview at uh, our headquarters in monrovia okay or you know we have an office in encino Great. Um, or we have you come back to beautiful Ventura, California. Yeah, whatever. I'm down. I got a car. We'll travel. <laughs> nice. Well, thank you very much. And um, we're thank totally you guys. Like, thank big you. supporters. And thank you for helping out with Al. Absolutely. You know, making your debut on the, on, the, on that platform. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> and as we always encourage people and share with people who listen or watch this show, we want them to get healthy, be healthy. And as always, stay healthy. Nice. Thank you. Thank you. Hello, everyone. This is Robert Ferguson, and thank you for watching our show. Now, be sure to like, subscribe, and click on the bell so that you are notified whenever we upload new shows. Again, thank you for watching.